This morning, we welcome the Reverend Dr. Irwin Ince to our pulpit. Dr. Ince is our denomination's Mission to North America coordinator. He was born and raised in New York City. And brothers and sisters, get this. Three blocks away from where my mom and family lived and where I spent the majority of my summers growing up. I'm telling you, it's like Sterling uh, train station. We probably butt each other right there. We probably met each other in Prospect Park. We probably went to the same store in Flatbush, and the only evidence we have of that is our hairstyles. <laughs> Sensing God's call to ministry, Irwin left his professional career as an engineer after obtaining his Master of Divinity degree from RTSDC. He subsequently earned his Doctor of Ministry from Covenant Theological Seminary. Now prior to that, his current, to his current position, he helped plant City of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Maryland, and was the Executive Director of the Grace DC Network Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission in Washington, DC. In 2018, Erdman was unanimously, Dr. Erdman was unanimously elected to serve as the moderator of our denomination's General Assembly. Dr. Ince and his wife, Kim, have four wonderful children, but he's only fawning these days over his two beautiful grandchildren. Erwin Ince, Dr. Ince, come and minister to us, sir. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Pear Orchard. It is good to be with you. Let me try that one more time. Good, I heard about one good morning. Good morning, Pear Orchard. <laughs> yes, this is a delight to be with you this morning. Uh, thank you for that introduction, my brother, uh, Reverend Dean. And yes, we do share hairstyles and neighborhoods and the like. Uh, it is my pleasure to uh, bring God's word before you this morning. I want to speak to you on this subject, as you see in your bulletin, keep your head in the clouds. Keep your head in the clouds. Our passage is the book of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, and verses 1 through 17. I will read that passage for us, and then we will pray. Here's God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if, in, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do bless your name this morning. We thank you for your word that is alive and active and sharp, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And Lord, that means that we are all in this place, naked and exposed to your eyes, the one to whom we must all give account. And so, Lord, you know then precisely what we need in this moment. So would you take and bless these efforts of mine in your word, weak and unworthy though they may be. Use them, Lord, to bless your people. Meet us where we are and give us what we need. Faith, hope, love, peace, joy, correction, encouragement, that we would be people who live more and more for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, a few years ago, I was sitting with a couple of fellow pastors who I consider friends. Both of these pastors are, are white brothers. They um, minister together in the same church. One is a senior, older than I am, and the other uh, is younger than me, about seven years younger. And I tell you this because the younger pastor uh, shared a story with us from back in his, the days of his senior year in high school. And this would have been around the early uh, 1990s, not that much long ago. And we were having a conversation around race and ethnicity and cross-cultural mission and loving neighbor across lines of difference in Jesus' name and the challenges that that presents. And, and he recounted this story from uh, a memorable experience of overt racism in his own life. This pastor grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and so he had lots of black friends and was used to interacting with Black folks on a daily basis, he played on his football team in high school, he played offensive line, in fact, he said there were only four white players on the entire team, and all four of them played on the offensive line, and they took great 
uh, pride in uh, blocking for their star quarterback and running back. Indeed, their star running back had enough talent to eventually make it to the NFL and play for the Arizona Cardinals. And so the team was pretty good. And they had the chance to play for the state championship that year. And one of those games took them to a place in the state of Georgia that was not as diverse as Atlanta. And he said that when they arrived on the bus and was making their way into that stadium and field, the, uh, the path was lined with uh, um, the opposing team's um, um, the opposing team's fans, and as they walked, those fans were, were shouting the most heinous and derogatory racist insults at their team. And this unnerved them. Uh, they were so nervous as they started the game, they couldn't make a first down, three and out, and this, this pastor, he played uh, the center on the offensive line, so it was his job to to hike the ball to the punter, to kick the ball to the other team. He said, we were so unnerved, I was so nervous that I managed to hike the ball over the head of our six-foot-six punter. And the ball rolls into the end zone. The opposing team jumps on it, scores a touchdown at 7 nothing. He says that was the score going into halftime. And he said, as they were walking off of the field, guess what happened? The opposing team's fans were lined on both sides of the path, shouting the same kinds of insults at them. They get into the locker room, and it's quiet. Team is unnerved, and that star running back decides to stand up in the middle of his teammates and shout, ain't nobody going to call me a N-word. He said a few other teammates started shaking their head and said, yeah, that's right, that's right. And he said, I don't know what came over me, but I decided to get up in the middle of the team and shout, ain't nobody gonna call me a... And he said, the whole locker room exploded with cheers. And, and, right? and they said, they rallied in the second half, they went out and they beat the other team down and the final score was 37 to seven. And I tell you that story because you know what it is about. That story is about identity. It is a story about how the groups that we are a part of help to form our sense of who we are. Who, who are you? Who are your people? That pastor said that as he told that story to us, he was getting chills all over again. It was a defining moment uh, where those African-American players were saying to him, yes, you're one of us. And the pastor, by his action, was saying, I'm with you in this. I'm welcoming and embracing what it means to belong here. Well, what does it mean to have your identity shaped and, and formed and even sometimes disoriented by the experience of intimate community across lines of deep difference. Well, God has something to say about that. God has something to say about the issue of our image and our identity because here's the deal. The central person in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ and he is at the center in part to, to deal with our image problem. Tell you what I'm talking about. Apostle Paul, he 
reminds the Colossians about this thing about Jesus in chapter 1 of this letter, starting in verse 15. He, he reminds them of this song the early church sang, that the lyrics went like this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for all things were created by him in heaven and the, on the earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been made through him and for him, and he is before everything, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of his body, the church of which he is the first cause, the first born from the dead, that in everything he might be first. The church's song is that Jesus is first, firstborn, first cause, first over everything, and he is preeminently the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the only one to ever walk the earth and not have an image problem. In fact, he came on the scene to take care of the image problem that all of us have. So when the Apostle Paul wants to tell the Colossians how they're supposed to be living here in chapter 3 of the letter, and he says to them down in verse number 9, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, comes to renew us in knowledge after his image. Why? Because as the apostle says in verse 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus does the re-imaging work that's needed by uniting us to himself. And because of that, God tells us here in his word to keep our heads in the clouds. And I am not talking about daydreaming. God makes us heavenly-minded people. But heavenly-mindedness is not pie-in-the-sky thinking. It means out with the old and in with the new. And so there are two news that we're going to talk about this morning, a new we and a new world, a new we and a new world. First four verses of Colossians 3, pack a heavy punch. The apostle says, if then you are raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And the dominant idea is that, that life is different now if you're a Christian. And the first way that it's different is that there is a new we. There's a different us. The Apostle Paul is saying to the Colossians, there's a new program going on that you need to follow. And it's called This Is Us. And let me tell you what it looks like. I want us to take note first of the fact that every time the personal pronoun you appears in this passage, it's plural. 
I, I point this out because, right, in English we can say you and mean you singular and you, uh, I mean you plural. Now I know, right, here in Mississippi, y'all got a solution for that. It's just y'all, y'all, right? And, and so, so every, every you in this passage is y'all. All right, so think about it that way. And the point, the point is, because we often here in uh, this country, often uh, in culture, view uh, the, the, our reading and approaching of the scripture from an individual perspective. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that's, that's how it is. And so when I read, if therefore you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, I, I, my mind says, I've been raised with Christ. I'm called to seek the things that are above. That is true, but that's not the whole deal. That's not the whole picture. The norm in the Bible is, is that God is not simply making a new person. God is making a new people. He's not simply making a different me. He's making a different we. The city of Colossa was a place where many different religious and philosophical views thrived. It was a pluralistic place, not very different from life as we know it today. There was ethnic and cultural and religious diversity in Colossa. And so when Christianity came to that city, it was added to the mix. And there was a temptation in that kind of setting. The temptation was, can we make... Christianity fit in with the other beliefs? Can we find a way to make Christianity fit within our cultural priorities? In other words, can we do some synchronizing here? I mean, aren't all belief systems essentially the same? And so from the beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul has been driving home to them the utter uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Everything else is false, and he is true. He calls for exclusive obedience, but he is radically inclusive in his exclusivity. He's creating a new people a new we, and everyone is invited. We heard him say in verse 18 of chapter 1 that Jesus is the head of his body, the church. And down in verse 11 of our passage, the apostle Paul says here, Colossians, that is here in Jesus' body, here in Jesus' church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a different we in Jesus' body and nobody is excluded on the basis of ethnicity or race or gender or age or social status or education or ability or differing ability or political position or anything else that we think makes us who we are. And this is important to say what's, what's being described here is not, is not uh, some type of colorblindness or I don't see color or I don't see differences. Of course we do. And Paul says, <laughs> there isn't Greek and Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He says it because there were Greek and Jew, <laughs> circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And you knew who they were. 
You could tell who they were. You could see it so you could see the distinctions and the differences that were existing in this diverse church in the city of Colossae. The difference and the distinction is that when we have been raised with Christ, those differences are no longer barriers to us being in community together. They are no longer barriers to our being intimately identified with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. What do we believe the, Christ, the Christian faith to be? And it's not just a way to punch our ticket to heaven. It's not just some system of beliefs that, that turn people against the culture as some believe. Christianity is not primarily defined by what it is against. It is it is. It is starts here with this vision of a new people, this vision of a new we, the renewal and the restoration of the image of God in those who've been raised with Christ and whose lives are therefore, as he says, are hidden with Christ in God. And here's the challenge, or at least one of the challenges in all of this new we stuff question becomes, what do I give up for this new we? What do I have to give up? I mean, my own sense of self, my ethnic identity or whatever my identity is, it, it helps to, to, to ground me. There's a sense of rootedness in my identity, and it can be a little disoriented to be shaped and formed into a new we, but here's the deal. I'm not called to check my ethnicity at the door when I walk into the church. I'm not called to check my gender at the door. We're not called by God to strike a balance between identity in Jesus Christ or a Christian identity and ethnic identity as if one washes out the other. What we are called to do is understand that being brought into union with Jesus Christ by faith means being brought into a fellowship of, of, of love with one another such that every other sense of identity is subservient to this one thing that we are in Christ together. Indeed, church that grows in the health of this kind of diversity helps to form people in this way by revealing that that whatever identity I'm holding to outside of, of that is, is not absolute. I got the tendency to make uh, things absolute, the subtotal of our existence, whether it's our ethnic identity, sexual identity, uh, uh, generational identity, intellectual identity, athletic identity, on and a political identity, whatever it may be. All of it is subservient to identity in Jesus Christ because of what the apostle says. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. This is important because the commands that the apostle Paul gives in these verses are given to this new community, to this new we. What are the commands? Seek the things that are above. 
Set your minds on the things that are above. Colossians, you all are to be seeking the things that are above and setting your minds on the things that are above together. Look, we, we cannot help but, but be formed and shaped by the groups we're associated with, and we know this instinct, instinctively, right? You, you, we know that we're influenced by others, right? We might say, you know, Pastor, well, I'm a... You know, I'm an independent thinker. You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm relatively independent. You know, well, that might be, but right? You know, you wasn't so independent when you was growing up. And mama said, no, you can't go there and you can't do this and you can't do that, right? You, are, you might push back, but those things that we learn are values that are shaped and form us even growing up in our homes became the foundation for, for, for how we live <laughs> and what we think is good and right and true. Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, you all become a different we, and your sense of who you are is to be shaped and formed by that reality. The reality is that there is a new we that cuts across every dividing line in humanity. There's a new we that cuts across every polarizing line and every wall that we built up to segregate and separate ourselves from one another as, as, as human beings. Whether that is race or ethnicity or gender or education, on and on and on the list goes. Humanity in our sinful falling condition, we specialize in division. Jesus Christ in the renewal that he brings specializes in reconciliation. And this new we, right, is 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 formed and shaped as a witness to the world for the reconciling power of the spirit of Christ the influence of our lives together as the spirit moves us to live bearing witness to the new world that's coming <laughs> as was new about this new world is that Jesus gives his people different eyes and a different mind. What starts to influence our formation, what starts to influence our identity, our sense of who we are is the things that are above, not the things here on earth. Paul says again in verse 3, you all have died and your life's been hidden with Christ in God. And and this is so significant, y'all, because Colossians is a short letter. It's only four chapters, but again and again and again, the Apostle Paul feels the need to remind them about their death to their old self and their life to the new self. That's why he reminds them in verse 18 of chapter 1 that Jesus is the first cause of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose to new life. And then he says to them in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We say, okay, Paul, we get it now. Dead, 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 alive, live, life. He said, I 
don't know if you really do. So he says it again in chapter 2 and verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And right on the heels of that, he repeats himself again in verses 1 and verse 3 of our text. You all have been raised with Christ. You've died with Christ, but you're not dead. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Having our lives hidden with Christ in God is real life in this real world with a new perspective, with our lives influenced and shaped by a new reality. A quote from the apostle again In this same letter, this is the third time that he has talked to them about something being hidden. In chapter 1, verses 25 to 26, he says that he became a minister according to the stewardship of God to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden, he said, for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God made known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What had been hidden, but is now revealed, is the mystery that God was going to demonstrate the riches of his glory by giving Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile alike, giving Jesus Christ to those who were wanted nothing to do with each other in society and making them one people. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he tells them that he had a great struggle for them and those at Laodicea. And the struggle is that he wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, he said, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what does it mean to be hidden in Christ, the one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? It means It means, family, now having the ability to, by the power of the Spirit and the desire to keep our heads in the clouds, to seek and set our minds on the priorities of heaven. This is about practical, everyday living as God's people in diverse community. He's about to get very practical in the The rest of the chapter, heavenly-mindedness, he tells them, is here's what it is. It is about putting to death what's earthly in you, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and covetousness. It's about putting off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. It's about not lying to one another. It's about putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Understand the context of this message. He had just talked, he's telling this, imagine what it's like to be in the church in Colossae that is comprised of people who come from a Jewish background, people who come from a Greek background, people who are enslaved, people who are free. Together, barbarians, Scythians, people who are from all of these different walks of life, different socioeconomic statuses, people who are hostile to one another in society. 
You think there might have been a little bit of challenge and conflict of, of living and worshiping together as one body? Of course. So Paul says, that's what heavenly-minded living looks like, is putting some things off, putting to death some things, and then putting on some things. Compassionate hearts between enslaved and free. Meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, he says, so you must also forgive. And, you know, people might say, you know, well, I don't really need Jesus to be compassionate, right? I don't need to be a Christian to forgive other people because, you know, psychologists will tell you that the benefits uh, of forgiveness for your own mental health, if you don't hold grudges and are, are willing to, to forgive, if that's what it means to be heavenly minded. Why do I need Jesus for that? Well, let's not forget the first point. God in Christ is creating a new we. It's not just about me being a compassionate or forgiving person. It's about the kind of community that God is creating in Christ. It is about the defining characteristics of that community, right? Pear Orchard, Presbyterian Church, what does God want our defining characteristics to be? How will this church bear witness in this community that the new world in Christ has broken into the present reality? The, the world should look at the church and be in awe. You're talking mission, right? The world should look at, at the church and wonder, how did that happen? How are those people together? That don't make no sense to me. They're supposed to be apart and divided, but here they are united together, striving together in love. That's what the, past, that's what the apostle says, isn't it? Above all these things, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then he's got this trifecta of, of gratitude, these, these two defining characteristics of heavenly-minded living, love and gratitude. Put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. Then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Love, love is the binding glue of perfection in Christian community. And I would say particularly love across lines of difference. Listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly says about the communion of saints, the fellowship and the connection that God's people have with one another. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and faith, have fellowship with him in his grace, 
sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to perform such duties, both public and private, that make for their mutual good, both inwardly and outwardly. George Hendry, a theologian from a generation ago, wrote, wrote in his commentary about this, says, this love is one that is not based on mutual attraction. This love is not about who are the people I want to be with. He said it is a love that, that overcomes divisions, that reconciles contraries, that brings into communion people who might not have anything else in common save the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself for them. In other words, the love that we're reading about in this passage in Colossians and throughout the scriptures is a supernatural love that looks different because it specializes in overcoming division and reconciling those who are contrary to one another. Listen, Jesus is necessary for this because the lives of the people who make up that community in Colossa and Christian community come from different walks of life. And there are people who might not choose to be together were it not for Jesus Christ, grabbing their hearts. Jesus is necessary because this kind of community is one who understands that they've died and being raised to new life. And in this new life, they're not living just for themselves. Their eyes are focused on their king because they have a new identity. You see, Jesus is the one who does the uniting. He's the source of our union in the church. So in him, we don't die to die. We die to live. Seeking the things that are above and doesn't mean searching for them. Setting our, our minds on things that are above doesn't mean sitting in quiet contemplation. Seeking and setting means having our lives uh, shaped and formed by the things that are above. Understanding that our sense of identity comes from this heavenly reality and truth. The reality is, says that Jesus is sitting down right now at the right hand of God, this position of power and authority and being wrapped up with him means having that power and authority by his spirit to have our lives shaped according to his likes and his dislikes power to have our lives shaped together by the extension of love, of mercy, and grace, especially across lines of difference. It's only those who are the most heavenly minded, y'all, that are actually able to labor for the most earthly good. Why is that? Because our longings, our longings for peace, <laughs> our longings for healing, our longings for reconciliation, our longings for renewal are not rooted in the ability, in any ability in this world to manufacture it. It only comes through the power of Jesus Christ creating us as a new we, bearing witness to our communities of the new world that is coming. 
Every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be before the Lamb, declaring, worthy is the Lamb to receive power and glory and honor and might and majesty because you have redeemed us from every tribe and every people and every tongue and made us a kingdom of priests to your God. We become people who live with a different expectation, a different perspective on what is real and true and good and beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who creates a new people in you, that you bring us together by the power of your spirit into one new body, all kinds of differences, all for your glory. I pray you would bless this church to grow in faithfulness to that as it bears witness to this community of the reconciling power of your gospel. Do it for your glory and our good through Jesus Christ. Amen.